Galatians chapter 1. When my family and I first arrived in Australia last year, we stayed in an Airbnb, and I discovered an ornate dish on the countertop in that Airbnb that had some inspirational quotations on cards that were available for daily use. The cards each focused on a particular strength that a true master of life must cultivate, they said. Apparently, these quotes were intended to lay out the path to success in life. How do you achieve success? How do you achieve the good life? Here are some examples of the strengths that a master must develop in order to achieve the good life. One was power. I am the master of my own destiny. As a master, I am defined as being able to accomplish anything I can think of. Or this one, self-confidence. As a master, I trust in myself. I trust that I can do whatever I have to do. I can pass all tests that come to me. We all have a set of lenses through which we look at this world. That's called our worldview. Our worldview develops as we experience this world. It's our understanding of the principles that govern this universe. The worldview promoted by these inspirational cards that man is the master of all things. He has within himself the power to master whatever comes his way. And therefore, each person apparently must look within himself for the strength and the ability to pursue and achieve the good life. We have that potential within ourselves, so they say. And our own experience backs this vision of the world up, it seems. It's the hard workers who get ahead in life, not the lazy. And in a Western society such as ours, even the economy is set up in such a way that the more you exert yourself, the better off you will be. The good life is achieved then, apparently, by intense human effort. And it's this vision of the world that motivates many people to get up every morning, to hop in their cars each day, to drive down the road to work. Our choices, day by day, determine our destiny. And so, by human fortitude, and self-confidence and trust in ourselves, we can achieve the desired end, the good life of blessing and prosperity. This is one of the foundational components of our worldview today. But there's hardly a more blasphemous vision of how this world operates. This modern view of the world sets man in God's place. It is the lie of the serpent from the Garden of Eden that has come to its full expression that man can be like God. It's the essence of rebellion against God. Man, they say, not God, is the master of his own destiny. We are self-made men and God is irrelevant. 
This morning we've opened our Bibles to the book of Galatians, and in this book we find that these readers had embraced a view of the world that's very similar to the worldview of our culture today, that man by his own self-effort can climb up into a better world, or at least uh, become a better version of himself. And as we will see, the Galatians worldview had a religious skin on it. It was man's effort at keeping God's law by which he may climb up into a better relationship with God and therefore more adequately merit God's blessings. But nevertheless, the essence of the thing was the same. What was going on in Galatia is what we believe today. And to counter this worldview, to attack it and destroy it, Paul picks up no more powerful weapon than the gospel. The very shape of the gospel message that Paul proclaims in the book of Galatians torpedoes this worldview of human power and self-confidence. And with a few broad strokes, Paul humbles all proud human fantasy that we can achieve the good life on our own. Today, we'll be looking at the first five verses of chapter 1. And in these verses, Paul is at his best in seeking to remove from his readers the terrible cancer of confidence in the flesh. Now, if we're going to understand this epistle, we have to read it within the context of the entire Bible. So very briefly, we're going to go back and set the stage upon which the conflict in Galatians is taking place. We'll look at both the Old Testament background for this book, as well as the situation that was unfolding in the city, the region of Galatia that Paul writes to. In the beginning, God made a world that was all very good. It was a world in which man was to multiply and fill the earth and reign over it, but sin entered into the world. Man fell, and in response, God cursed the earth. No longer was the world very good. Sickness, conflict, injustice, oppression, disease, all of this crowded into God's world along with death, and now man labors under the weight of it all. And yet God gave a promise of salvation to Abraham. In you, he said, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The path to blessing, the reversal of the curse will come through Abraham. If you want to have blessing, you must be in Abraham. You must be one of Abraham's offspring. This isn't how we normally talk about salvation, being in Abraham. But it's, it's a very biblical way of thinking about what salvation is. If God is at work to reverse the curse for Abraham and his family and to bless them, then the question is, how does one get into Abraham's family to receive God's blessing? And that's the question that comes up repeatedly in the book of Galatians. To understand this book, <coughs> excuse me, we also have to understand something about the situation that was taking place in Galatia itself, into which Paul writes this letter. Paul had preached the gospel of Jesus Christ in Galatia. And many of these Gentiles had come to faith in Christ Jesus, the son of Abraham. 
Paul's gospel was that the blessings of God and the promise of salvation are found in Abraham's son, Jesus of Nazareth, the Jewish Messiah. Our faith, Paul said, unites us to this son of Abraham, to Abraham's line. And thus, through faith alone, he says, we inherit the promised blessing of God. After Paul departs from Galatia, false teachers came in. They entered the church to preach a false gospel. They were teaching the people that faith in Christ was not enough. If one was to be a true child of Abraham and to receive God's blessing of life, you must also keep God's law, they said. You had to be righteous if you wanted God to treat you as righteous and pour out his blessings upon you. Christ and his cross were necessary, they said, but they were not enough. Human cooperation and effort was necessary as well. And the order was significant. Human effort came first. And then God would respond to that effort with his blessing. It is man's work first that calls down God's blessing from heaven. But this was a false conception of things. And Paul is attacking it in the book of Galatians. And he begins his epistle with these words in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. In this opening barrage, Paul describes how he has come to be an apostle of the gospel of Christ, first of all. And secondly, he describes in verses 3 through 5 how the Galatians have come to receive God's grace and peace in the gospel. And the main point here is that there's a similarity between the two, a common pattern. The gospel contains within it a common pattern, a paradigm. The paradigm is visible both in how a man becomes a messenger of the gospel, as well as how men obtain God's grace and peace in the gospel. To tamper with and to change this pattern is to tamper with and to change the gospel. And it's here in the letter's opening that Paul sets forth this pattern of the gospel. By setting this gospel pattern before his readers, Paul begins his attack upon the Galatian false gospel, which taught that the blessings of Abraham can be obtained by human self-effort. But let's look now at this passage. These ideas are too important for you to take my words for it. Our eternal destiny hangs upon getting this right. So look with me at verses 1 through 2. Paul begins in verse 1 by calling himself an apostle. The Greek people used this word apostle when they wanted to refer to someone chosen and sent on behalf of another. A writer from several centuries after Paul said, Everyone who is sent by someone 
is an apostle of the one who sent him. In the New Testament, the word apostle is a word that's used to speak of someone sent to proclaim the gospel. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. He takes the gospel to the Gentiles. He is sent with the gospel to the Gentiles. So who sent Paul to take the gospel to the Gentiles? Well, Paul tells us in verse 1, he's an apostle. He has been sent with the gospel, not from men, nor through man. Here, Paul focuses upon where in the world did his commission to go forth with the gospel come from? Where did his mission of taking the gospel to the Gentiles originate? And Paul leads off by denying that it came from any human being. No man was the ultimate source of Paul's call to take the gospel. And no man called Paul and sent him. His call did not come to him from any man. It didn't come through any man. No man stood between God and Paul and carried his commission from God down to Paul. No man mediated his apostolic call to him from God. Human beings had nothing to do with Paul's call and his apostolic commission. Paul is where he is at as an apostle of Jesus Christ, not by the will or command of man, and not even by his own desire and will. Instead, he says, he is an apostle, verse 1, through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He is the fountainhead from which Paul's apostolic mission springs. Paul does what he does because Jesus Christ has sent him. Here Paul has his experience on the road to Damascus in view. Remember that? The bright light from heaven as Paul's journeying along. Jesus Christ says, go. Go. For I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And thus, Christ is the author of Paul's mission to the Gentiles. But Paul also says here that his commission is through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Now, on the road to Damascus, Luke tells us in the book of Acts that it was Jesus Christ who spoke to Paul from heaven. He's the one who gave Paul the commission. So why does Paul say here that God the Father was also part of that commission? What part did the Father play? And the answer is given to us in what Paul says here about the Father. Paul says, I'm an apostle through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. In this verse, Paul links the Father and Jesus Christ and the relationship between the two is that the Father has raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And so here Paul has in view what he fills out for more for us in more detail in Ephesians 4. That when Christ triumphed over death at the resurrection, when the Father brought him to life, he ascended up into heaven, he received gifts, and he poured them out upon his people, much like a conquering general comes into possession of the spoils of war and carries them home to give them to his people. And so, because God is the one who raised Christ from the dead, God is also the ultimate source of all of those blessings and gifts that Christ pours out upon his people. 
And in Ephesians 4, one of those gifts is the gift of apostle. And so by raising Christ from the dead, now the Father has put Jesus Christ in the place where he can commission Paul to be an apostle. And so in Galatians 1, when Paul says that God raised him from the dead, he's saying that God the Father may be viewed as the ultimate fountainhead, the spring from which his apostolic commission flowed. Who sent Paul? Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul tells us then that he writes with all the brothers with me. He acts under the authority of Jesus Christ and God the Father. He's not an independent contractor hired by God. He is God's own employee equipped and sent forth by God and answerable to him alone. Paul's message is from Jesus Christ and God the Father. The gospel he preaches then is the true gospel. He was sent by God to proclaim it. And Paul's gospel commission and his gospel message are both from God and from Jesus Christ. And although Paul's commission is not from or through any man, nevertheless, Paul can say that the gospel he preaches, verse 2, is something which every other believer with whom Paul is acquainted agrees. Paul, an apostle, and all the brothers who are with me write to the churches of Galatia. Paul's not saying here that all the other believers that he knows helped him to write this gospel as though he wrote a word and then they wrote a word. Instead, he's saying that every other believer that he knows agrees with him concerning this gospel. Paul knows of no other believer in Christ who disagrees with the gospel that he sets down in this book. There is common agreement amongst them all that this is the true gospel. Now, what Paul says here is actually really strange in light of what he's just said. He's just finished saying that his gospel, his message, are from God. So why does he feel the need then to say that all the brothers are on his side as well? Does human agreement make the gospel true? Is the divine source of Paul's gospel insufficient to make the gospel true? Paul's not saying here that human agreement is what makes his gospel the true one. Instead, he's asking us to consider this question. Why do all Christians agree about what the gospel is? Agreement requires a common source. What is that common source that makes all Christians agree? And the answer is God. Paul's gospel is not made up by any man, or else there would be many gospels. This is what had happened at Galatia. Paul proclaims the gospel of God, and then people come in to make up their own versions of it, and there are many versions of the gospel at work then. There are new gospels, apparently. But only a single divine source of the gospel could explain why everyone agrees about it. And thus, Paul is once again calling our attention to the fact that his gospel message comes from God alone. Who else could create a whole group of people who all agree except one common 
source, which is God. And this means then that if the Galatians who read this letter, if they dismiss the gospel that Paul proclaims, they are dismissing the true gospel that has come down from God. And so in these first two verses, we find out that the gospel is from God and that he sends men like Paul to proclaim it to us. Paul's gospel and his commission to proclaim this good news to us is not from any human source. It is, Paul says, from God alone. But in these opening verses, Paul's not simply trying to show us that the gospel has come from God. He has another step that he wants us to take with him. He's seeking to show us that the gospel that comes from God is all of God and all for God. And let's look at this in verses 3 through 5. Paul says, May grace be to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. In this section, Paul tells us who his audience is. He's writing to the churches of Galatia, the believers who exist in that region. These Galatian churches are in the region Paul visited on his first missionary journey, in the cities of Antioch of Pisidia, Lystra, Derby, Iconium. You can read about them in Acts 13 and 14. He had come. He had preached the gospel there. And those who had believed his message concerning Jesus Christ had gathered together into churches. And Paul greets these churches in verse 3 now with a wish of grace and peace upon them. May grace be to you and peace, Paul says. Grace is Paul's code word in Galatians for all of the blessings of salvation and eternal life that belong to a Christian because of the work of Jesus Christ. And peace doesn't refer to a situation of life like may there be no storms for you or no troubles or no, no trials. Instead, the word peace refers to the character of our relationship with God that comes as a result of Christ's work. No longer are we enemies of God. The war is over. Now there is peace with God. And taken together then, the words grace and peace, these two words encompass the full range of the gospel. By grace and peace, Paul has summed up the whole gospel in just two words. May grace be to you from God, a grace that restores your relationship to God as a relationship now of peace. The gospel is a message of grace, that it is a gift of God. And the primary effect of this grace is that our relationship with God is restored to a relationship of peace. This is the gospel then in microcosm, in just two words, grace and peace. And Paul prays here that his readers would experience the grace and the peace of the gospel to a fuller measure. They already have it. They are believers in Jesus Christ. But Paul prays that they would experience more, that they would enjoy its gracious gifts and settle down more fully into its peace. And Paul is less interested, however, in developing what this grace and peace are at this point in the letter than he is in telling us where it comes from. Where does this grace and peace originate? 
He has voiced a prayer that it would come to these believers. And in that, in the fact that Paul prays for this, we have a little hint as to where Paul thinks this grace and peace comes from. It must come from God if Paul expresses his wish to God. And Paul makes that fact explicit to us in verse 3. May grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 3, Paul shows us this grace and peace come from the same source that his gospel does and that his apostolic commission does. Compare verse 1, Paul, an apostle, through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the entire development of Paul's thought in verses 3 through 5 shows that God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ are the source of this grace and peace that lies at the heart of the gospel. It's not produced by any human being. Paul wants us to know something about Jesus Christ in verse 4 from which this grace and peace comes. He says, He gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. This is the foundation upon which God can bestow this grace and peace to us. Were it not for this work of Christ, grace and peace would not be ours. But the Jesus who gave himself up for our sins has bestowed upon us grace and peace through the gospel. The grace and the peace of the gospel are the result then of Christ's work, not ours. Christ is the one who delivered himself up for us, Paul says. He gave himself up for us in our place. And he did it to deliver us from the present evil age. Christ gave himself up with a specific goal in view. It was to rescue us from this present evil age. What does Paul mean when he speaks about being delivered from this present evil age? What are we delivered from by Christ's sacrifice? We automatically say sin. We're delivered from sin or God's wrath. Paul says here, this present evil age. What does he mean? Galatians itself actually tells us what Paul means. If you would, flip over a page to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. We'll come back to this passage in a couple of weeks. But here Paul says in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Here Paul speaks about Christ's crucifixion. I have been crucified with Christ. And he speaks of it with the same words that he used in chapter 1 verse 3. I have been crucified with Christ who loved me and gave himself up for me. In chapter 1, he gave himself up to deliver us from the present evil age. 
What does crucifixion deliver Paul from in this passage? Well, notice what Paul says in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. Crucifixion accomplished the death of two people, Christ and Paul. I have been crucified with Christ. The result of this dual crucifixion is what Paul says in the next phrase, I no longer live. And that makes sense. If you've been crucified, you do no longer live because you have been put to death. And yet in the next phrase, Paul says, the life that I now live in the flesh. Yet notice that this life that he now lives proceeds on a different basis than his life did before the cross. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's a critical contrast between Paul's former life before the cross and Paul's life now that he has met Christ. Paul before the cross was a self-righteous Pharisee. He worked hard before God's law to measure up. It was all Paul, Paul's effort. And Paul was confident in himself. But when he met Christ, by the cross of Christ, Paul was put to death. Paul with all of his confidence, Paul with all of his self-trust, Paul, with all of his effort, was put to death by the cross. His self-righteous confidence in himself was slain by Christ's cross because the cross showed him that his own self-righteousness fell woefully short of God's standard. And that realization that it took the death of the Son of God for this man to stand righteous before God, that realization killed every bit of self-confidence that Paul had. And it continues to put it to death day by day. The life I now live from day to day in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up in my stead for me. Now it's no longer Paul who lives. Now it is Christ that lives. Paul lives but only by faith in the Son of God. So what did Christ's act of giving himself up for Paul, what did it deliver Paul from? In Galatians 2.20, it didn't deliver him from presence in this world. Instead, it delivered him not from this period of time, but from the prevailing mindset and worldview of this time. And I think that's what Paul means in Galatians chapter 1, verse 4 then. He gave himself up to deliver us from this present evil age. Paul's worldview before he finds Christ differs very little from the prevailing worldview of this present evil age, that I am sufficient, that I can accomplish that I can inherit, that I can receive blessing in myself. And Paul says Christ gave himself up to deliver us from that way of thinking. He gave himself up so that we no longer live, so that now we live by faith 
in the Son of God. He delivered us not from being present in this evil age, but he delivered us from the evil that is in this current age, that evil of self-confidence. He delivered us right up out of that by his cross. And we'll come back to what that means in a couple of weeks. The cross says to us, our own self-effort could never be enough. If human beings by their own effort could achieve God's blessing, then why did Christ die? But he did die. And so the cross puts to death in us all of our self-reliance, the very self-reliance that exists that characterizes this present evil age, so that now we no longer rely upon ourselves. Instead, we live by relying upon the Son of God who gave himself for us. And thus, that matches exactly what Paul's saying here in this context. The grace and peace comes from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ who died to deliver us from any confidence in ourselves that the gift of God's blessing and grace might be through us. Paul is saying that Christ died to deliver us from trusting in ourselves. And Paul includes one more phrase to drive home to us this point that the grace and peace that we enjoy as a result of Christ's self-sacrifice and not by any human effort. He includes the phrase, according to the will of our God and Father. It wasn't even by any human will that we received this grace and peace. It is according to the will of God alone. Why did Christ offer himself up for us? Was that your will? Did you decide that? Why is grace and peace ours now? By your own will? By your own effort? It is ours now for this reason, according to the will of our God and Father. God has willed that it would be so. And where is human effort in that? This is what Paul denies in Romans 9. And Paul concludes the section then with a statement of glory to God, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Why include a statement like that? By this statement, Paul is driving his point home one more time. He's setting forth for us the goal in all of this. Why did God do what he did? Why was Paul's apostleship from God alone and not from any man? After all, God was the one who determined that it would be that way. Why did God choose to do it that way? That it would be from God alone that the gospel would come. Why did God set it up so that the gospel would be a message that he came up with and delivered to men through apostles that he sent forth? Why would grace and peace come from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ? Why did not God not create a treasury of grace and let human beings fill it and dispense it to other human beings at will as Catholicism teaches? Why did God set it up so that our deliverance from sins would be the work of Christ alone? Why does he tell us that the gospel moves forward according to the will of God and not according to human will? Why did God construct the whole thing so that he was the center of all of this? The commission and the gospel and the deliverance and the grace and peace. It was this, so that God in all things would be the one who receives the glory for it all. Any other gospel, a gospel that includes human self-effort in any way, robs God of his rightful glory. Any other gospel 
attributes the glory for human salvation to the will and work of man. But if God is the fountainhead, the spring, the only source from which the gospel comes, then God alone is the one who gets the glory for all of human salvation. So let's sum all of this up. What is the pattern of the gospel that Paul shows us here? This section of scripture, as we've seen, contains two main parts, verses 1 and 2, and verses 3, 4, and 5. What's Paul's main point in each? Verses 1 through 2, Paul's apostleship and message is from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything else that he says in verses 1 and 2 support that idea. That his commission, his apostleship, his message, the gospel he proclaims is all from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 3 through 5. Grace and peace in the gospel is from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. And everything else he says in verses 3 through 5 supports that main idea that grace and peace comes to us from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this then is the paradigm, the pattern of the gospel. We see the pattern in verses 1 and 2. And we see it again in verses 3 through 5. It's a pattern we see repeated throughout the entire book of Galatians. It is the pattern of the gospel. What is it? What is this paradigm of the gospel? We've already hinted at it, and now let's make it plain. The worldview of the false teachers at Galatia was this. Man lives. He is alive. He is virulent. He is strong. Man can accomplish things. Behind the teachings of the false teachers is the assumption that man is able, that he can contribute, that his will can explain certain advances in holiness and righteousness, that man can self-actualize, there's a word we hear a lot today, that he is able to rise and to become what God requires of him, or even just to make positive steps forward to make his life better. Human flourishing lies within the reach of every human being, our world tells us today. And Paul leads off his epistle with a description of the gospel that is utterly incompatible with that idea. It's not just that certain pieces of Paul's gospel had been misplaced and the order of things jumbled up a bit by the false teachers. It was that the false teachers had introduced a completely new gospel a new kind of gospel, so new that Paul says in verses 6, 7, and 8 that it is not even a gospel at all. Externally, it may look something like Paul's gospel. After all, they did speak about Christ and Abraham and righteousness and blessing, but at its heart, this false gospel arises from a completely different view of man and God and the world and salvation. And the good news that Paul proclaims is that while man lay bound and dead in sin, God has acted to bring deliverance. He has promised. He has called. He has justified. Christ has died. God has raised him from the dead. God has given his promise. His word is sure and there is nothing left for man to contribute. Grace and peace is from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. 
And so as we look upon the work of God in the cross, we are confronted with a choice as to where we will place our confidence. Will you respond to all of this by transferring all of your confidence from yourself to Jesus Christ? Or will you continue to regard yourself as able and strong to attain the blessing of God, or at least to contribute to the good life? God simply looks for a heart whose confidence rests in Christ, and Christ alone, not itself, for righteousness and blessing and hope of eternal life. And when this gospel is proclaimed, it is God alone who receives the glory for it. Now there's one more word we have not yet discussed in this passage. It's the last word of verse 5. Amen. The word amen is simply a word of guarantee. That's true. By including this word, Paul is voicing his own guarantee that these things are true. And by including this word, he is also issuing to us an invitation. Will we voice with him the amen? Can you conclude this passage also with an amen? Or are you still clinging to just a bit of self-effort? Something you can do as your own contribution to your own well-being and salvation. Is your reliance still in yourself? This is the paradigm of the gospel. And it is by this paradigm that we are saved. It is by this paradigm that we continue to live. Paul says in Philippians 3 verse 4, that the true sons of Abraham put no confidence in the flesh. It is under this pattern that we begin our Christian life, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, no confidence in ourselves. And in Galatians 1, and Galatians 2, and Galatians 3, and Galatians 4, and 5, and 6, Paul says that we continue to live our lives in these fleshly bodies by that same pattern. Grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone. Our boast is not in ourselves. It is in Christ alone. The Christian experience is a life of walking not according to the efforts of the flesh, but a life of walking by the Spirit. And we will give attention to these things in future messages. Now, if you claim to be a Christian, then you have admitted these things. That no good dwells within you. And you can sing heartily, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. That's how you found Christ. Salvation in him alone. But that's how we continue to live. Gaze upon that cross from day to day and let it crucify again and again all your self-confidence. See in that cross God's work in Christ to deliver you. Trust in that. Rely upon that work for your daily growth in grace. Repent of your failings. 
Take confidence again, not in yourself, but in the Holy Spirit and His power to produce Christ in you. And then walk forward in the power of the Spirit because this is the paradigm of the gospel. Lord God, thank you for these things that you have delivered to us by Paul's pen. Our own heart pushes us, inclines us. Indeed, your law inclines us to trust in ourselves, to achieve what it demands. Lord God, we pray that you would deliver us by Christ and by his cross. And help us to see now, even in the Lord's Supper, that all that we need for life, that which sustains our life, comes from outside of ourselves. It comes from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that in this way, as we observe this supper by faith, as we reach outside of ourselves to partake of what we need to sustain our lives, I pray that in this way, that we would bring glory to God as the source and the spring of our life. And we ask these things in Christ's name.